made the remark, uh, you know, Dad, this is the last sermon of the decade. And what he was trying to tell me is, you know how on TV there's the highlights of the year, the highlights of the decade? That's kind of what he's expecting this morning, something pretty epic, probably some video support and cool things happening. Um, that's not what I had planned for you this morning. If that's what you're expecting, there are probably a few more crayons in the foyer. You can grab that and you can do some art while we go through the, the message this morning. But this morning, we're continuing uh, in the series that Pastor Don started, uh, looking at uh, the Christmas story and looking at some unique one-word usages in, in that story. And so we're going to get to a word later this morning in Matthew chapter 2. But I want to just start again. We've, we've kind of hit some of these places already, but I want to just review. And, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, starting in, in verse 1 here. We're going to read the first eight verses together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the time of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You know, the older I get, the more the ways of God amaze me. The more the ways of God are, are mysterious, and, and, and I would also say probably the more comfortable I am with the mystery of God. Here, here God reveals the birth of the Son, and, and this is not a last-minute thing. Peter, in his letter, talks about the fact that Jesus was chosen in him before the creation of the world to do exactly what is happening here. There's prophecies that cover uh, these, these events written 100 years before his coming. God, God had planned this out. This is not a last-minute thing. And when I think of the purpose of planning, one of the things when you plan is you want things to go smoothly. You plan ahead so that things go well. God had all kinds of time and all sorts of wisdom. But as you read the story of the Magi, they arrive in a place that guarantees trouble. They're introduced in, in, in the first verse of this chapter, but we understand a lot has happened before this verse. They have learned of the birth of the king. They tell Herod, we saw this star. We saw it rise, and we've come to see this king that this star is announcing. They talk about this mysterious and, and supernatural sign. Others have also argued there were probably some access to some Jewish writings that have helped fill in some of the details for him. But put it simply, God has led them to this place, and God has revealed this birth by supernatural means, and they've come a long ways, over a thousand kilometers. So they've been traveling for a significant time, and their, and their purpose is clearly expressed. We want to welcome this king. We want to see this king. We brought gifts for this king, and we want to worship this king. And they land up, in, in my opinion, in the worst place they could land up, in Herod's palace, asking for help and direction. It seems like God is not interested in avoiding conflict. And their audience with Herod is, is 
not helpful. If you were looking for somebody to ask this question and get a good answer from, in one sense, he has access to people who know the answers, but he's the worst person to ask this question of, in my opinion. He's, he's known for a few things. We know him as Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great because he was a, a great builder. One of his greatest projects was the rebuilding and the beautification of the temple. He built theaters. He built hippodromes for horse and chariot racing. Uh, the region under him prospered, and he was a, a, an astute politician. He, he held on to power for a long time. But on the other hand, he was not a great man. He was a, a cruel tyrant. He was one who loved power. We are told he was distrustful and jealous, and we are told his paranoia in his later years got worse as he was ill for some, uh, some time, and that illness just somehow magnified that paranoia. So he would crush those who opposed him, and it didn't really matter who. Pastor Don talked about Augustus, Caesar Augustus saying, I'd rather be his pig than his son, speaking of his brutal nature. Herod once feared that his wife Miriam was trying to poison him. This is a wife he loved. He had named one of the fortress towers after her. That's a nice thing to do. He adored her, but he realized if, if she's doing this, I'm going to have to take her out, and he killed her. And she also killed two of the sons she had with her. So he was not afraid to do what he had to do or what he thought he had to do to protect his throne. He presented himself as the protector of Judaism, and he worked hard to gain the favor of the people, but the Jews never accepted him as a legitimate king, and that drove him crazy. So I find it interesting and, and, and really amazing that God, who works in supernatural ways, reveals himself to these men from so far away tells them of a king that is born and no ordinary king. They're led supernaturally by a star and they end up in the presence of King Herod. And they ask a question that's guaranteed to trigger the man. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. A king has been born, rightfully born. Herod had to fight for his throne. This king has been born a king. And he's been born the king of the Jews, which he rules right now. And his birth indicated by a star, which is more than unusual. And they have come all this distance, not simply to meet, not simply to welcome, not simply to recognize, but they've come to worship. We all have family, and over the last number of months, I've, I, I usually try to get home for lunch and connect with Ruth and the kids a little bit. And a few times in the last, maybe, I think, October, November, I've heard my wife saying to one of my kids, don't poke the bear. And we understand the expression, don't we? It's, it's an important lesson to, to learn. Don't provoke people who have the power to make your life miserable. In this case, don't poke somebody who runs faster than you. And don't poke someone who is taller than you and has bigger arms and legs than you and has the ability to make life difficult and painful. You don't want to invite an awakened physical ability and have its power focus on you in a negative way. So we all look to avoid danger. Had I been leading these men, and I, I obviously wasn't, I would have avoided the palace. I would have skirted Jerusalem. I would have gone past the outskirts. I would have made sure that the directions included that critical last step. It's interesting as you read after they consult with Herod, they go out and the star all of a sudden is, is back again and doing what it was doing all along. I would have taken a pass here. I would have asked directions of somebody. I would have led him to somebody who is not threatened by the news of a king that isn't both powerful and paranoid. 
But God doesn't seem concerned about avoiding conflict here. And when Herod hears the question, he's, he's troubled and he's not the only one. And their answer to the question is simple enough. It's Bethlehem, a, a simple location, not far from where they were. And they include the detail, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And I think, again, an answer that pushes Herod's buttons a little bit. Again, that's what he was trying to be. That's what he was trying to do unsuccessfully. And somehow Herod doesn't lose his cool in the presence of the Magi. He plays it well. He keeps his mask intact enough that he's able to deceive the Magi. And he, and he speaks with them secretly, which is an interesting detail. He summons the wise men secretly and ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Somehow the Magi don't pick up on Herod's duplicity. Uh, he's, they in essence, believed that, yeah, Herod would like to join them in their quest as well. He wants to worship as well. And so they go on their way, and we read these details. After they left the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose above, and sorry, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced, exceedingly with great joy and going to the house they saw the child with Mary's mother they fell down and worshipped him then opening their treasures they offered gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way so God supernaturally warns them against returning to see Herod and so they go back by another route and, and it's surprising, is it? I know in the fall, uh, Pastor Don was preaching through the Gospel of John on, on various aspects of it, not through the whole book, but talking about discipleship. And we were encouraged to read through the, the Gospel at least a couple of times. And it's interesting when you lead, read those Gospels in, in, in longer chunks, the opposition, several people mentioned to me, just it's surprising the opposition you see to Jesus. And it isn't amazing here that Jesus, he's, he hasn't, done anything yet he hasn't spoken in public he hasn't challenged any religious leader he hasn't spoken of sin he hasn't done a miracle he has no public presence but already there's opposition already there's a man who is preparing to hunt him down and i'm not arguing the opposition opposition would not have been there later but God could have easily led these men past the palace. We know that Herod didn't live that much longer after this, depending on when you exactly date the birth of Christ and, and all those details. It wasn't a significantly long time. But opposition, it seems, is not just something that God permits, not just something that God allows in our life, not that something God just leads us through, but sometimes God leads us into opposition and trial. And it's amazing the cost for the children of God who have to live that it can be a hard road i think of so many characters in in the in the christmas store we we sometimes i have a pyramid at home and it, and it's got mary and joseph and the baby it has the wise men and then the shepherds and then the angels on the top and it's very peaceful to look at but there's a lot of the story as you go on from those moments and look out further there's a lot of incredible difficulty in the christmas story i think of of zachariah and, and elizabeth here their long-standing prayer, Lord, give us a child, was answered. And the angel said some incredible things of this child. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great 
before the Lord. It must have been incredible, wouldn't it have been, to be that old couple holding this little child and, and understanding this is not just a, a it's, it's a miracle child. This is a child that shouldn't have been physically possible to have, but God brought this child to them. And, and how sweet those prayers that have answers after you've prayed them for a long time. I mean, I know we love instant answers to prayer, and we love it when we pray for something in the afternoon, there's already an answer, but how sweet those prayers that you've prayed for years or decades, and then you see God answer and supply. This child, though great before the Lord, found conflict with Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, and his wife Herodias. His final days were spent in prison on the sideline, and he was eventually beheaded by this Herod in response to a promise he made to a stepdaughter. I think that's hard. You just ask for a child, not anticipating that kind of ending. I think from John's perspective, who who prepares the way for the Lord, who has such significant ministry on the front end, and it's and it's awesome and impressive in, in its scope. And he understood that it wasn't about him. He said so clearly in John 3, he must increase, but I must decrease. Even so, though, I don't think he anticipated the long prison stay and being killed. While in prison, he would ask the questions of his disciples, would you please ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another deeply discouraged, hard, and I think of Mary and Joseph, and you think, what a wonderful thing in so many ways. But theirs was a traditional story until the angel surprised Mary with the news. Not asked, but told, this is what's going to happen. And from that moment, the life they had anticipated was completely changed. There's many, many beautiful moments. The wondrous moment at the birth of Christ, the visit of the shepherds. Uh, we read of Mary that she treasured up all those things in her heart. I, I wish we could know what happened during the visit of these men, the Magi, their, their worship, their offering, another amazing moment. It must have been wondrous in many respects. But then we read of Herod's intent, and the angel that night speaks to Joseph in a dream and says these words, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he wakes up in the night, he awakens Mary, grabs the baby, they pack in haste, and they flee for his life. They run to Egypt, some 120 kilometers away. Another culture, there is a, a, a large Jewish community there, we were told. But it wouldn't have been easy, right? Is there, is there anyone here that enjoys moving? I would honestly say I used to enjoy moving. It used to be really great fun. You got a brand new place to live and things to discover. And then... The last, the move here was insane. I, I still wonder, you know, we moved seven kilometers from our old house, but I ended up moving everything four times. I'm not sure. I don't like moving, all that to say. But how about a last minute move like this? And a move where you're, <laughs> it's just, you got to go. Uh, and there's a lot of details that are unknown. And worst of all, in my opinion, the older I get, this, this, this command, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. This, this open-ended, here's where you are to go, and you will come back one day, and I'm going to tell you to come back, but I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to tell you to come back. So you're on hold in Egypt. Is anybody here getting good at waiting? Anybody? <laughs> yeah, I, right there, is that a hand, or is that an itchy ear? I don't know. 
If you're good at waiting, you should do conferences. It would be so hard to be unaware of those details. God leads them on a difficult path, and, 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 and God allows this, and in some ways instigates this, and God allows them to be in a place where Joseph and Mary are particularly vulnerable, and, and Jesus, as we are told, we know this story, we are told of Herod's intent later in this account, he's not looking for an opportunity to worship, and his plan is to destroy the child. And if you had to ask, you have a, a king who has reigned for a long time, who is well-established. He has the power of the Roman military behind him. He is ruthless. He has a long track record of doing what it needs to be done to keep his throne secure. And you have a young couple and a, a young child. Who's going to come out ahead in this battle? You say, well, obviously Herod. We told the story down in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, and the kids say, no, Jesus. And and. That answer works all the time, but let's be honest, if we were betting on this and we weren't aware of all the details, we'd go, Herod's going to win this, hands down. Herod is willing to do whatever it takes. You know, you watch those movies sometimes, and there's the bad guy that gets all the good guys captured somehow, ties them up, and he has a gun on them, and then he explains the whole plan, and rather than shooting them, he leaves and does his plan, and the people escape, and, and then it's, all, it's a great ending, the good guys win. Herod's not that guy that forgets to shoot the people. He's extra paranoid these days, but God works quietly and miraculously to accomplish his purpose. <laughs> An angel in a dream to one person. Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there because Herod's, Herod's coming. And we read that he got up, took the child, his mother, by night and departed to Egypt. You have to appreciate Joseph, don't you? We don't know a lot about him, but just he seems like whenever he's told to do something, he obeys right away. And there's a part of me that says, well, in this instance, it was an angel of the Lord in a dream. That seems awful clear. And, and it's certainly motivational saying there's somebody coming to hunt your child down to kill him. So there's an extra motivation to be obedient in that case. But at the same time, when we, when we pick up the Bible... We, we pick up the word of God. I was, I was talking to somebody. He said, what are all the red letters in the Bible for? And he said, well, I said, that's where Jesus spoke directly. Those are his words recorded for us. When we pick up the Bible, we're hearing Jesus teach and speak and command. What we hear of Joseph is he hears from the Lord and he responds. There's no evidence of argument, discussion, or pushback or delay. He gets up and does exactly as instructed, and while the command of the Lord is, is certainly clear, it would not have been easy, but he goes and obeys immediately. Any of you struggle with that kind of obedience? A lot of my obedience is, is more discussion-based. I would have had a lot of questions. How, how long do we go to Egypt? What do, we, what do we do with the stuff we can't take? Should we store it? What do we do with it? We give it away? Do we, do we rent something in Egypt? And by the way, what part of Egypt should we go to? Do we sign a long lease, a short lease? What do we do for work? Do we live off uh, the proceeds of the gifts we have or should I get work? What do we do? There's a lot of relevant and important questions, but they pack up as directed and leave. And they stay there until God tells him to come back. In, in verse 20 of the same chapter, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, 
and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life and dead. They come back, and then they hear that the one son of Herod's is reigning in place of his father, who's particularly brutal, so that he sleeps again, and God warns him in a dream, and they end up in a city called Nazareth. So God protects Joseph, Mary, his son, Jesus Christ, his purposes, but let's not assume it's easy. I used to think being a Christian meant that God was going to work to make your life easy. <laughs> That's not evident in scriptures. Now, I know some of you want to appreciate this, and, and maybe it's not important, football. But I enjoy football, and I wanted to bring this up just because I th sometimes Pastor Don talks about the Packers and Aaron Rodgers like they're the only team, and we need to be, oh, thank you. Yeah, we need to be aware that there's other people, and, and my team I have a few teams because I, I always like to have a backup for the playoffs. We were having a, a pretty good year because our year started where it was like the expectations were, were pretty low for our team, but we kept winning and we kept doing all right and, and things were going well and we were kind of coming to the place where we could secure a really important position. But last Sunday we played a team that had only won four games an entire season and they beat us. And to make it worse, we'd already lost one of our running backs, but Another one of our running backs broke his arm in the game, so he's done. And the other one fractured his hip in the game, so he's done. So all of a sudden, a very promising good thing is looking very precarious and not encouraging. And then this week, they announced the return of beast mode, which may not mean much to you, and that's okay. Don't worry about it. You can Google it when you go home. They signed Marshawn Lynch. And... As much as, well, I won't even try to justify talking about this, but he had a famous play years ago in 20, uh, 2011, that a play that has a name, it's called Beastquake. It's a page that has a Wikipedia page, so it is important. It is a, it is a you can Google it and you'll find it, and it's quite something. He scored a touchdown that basically gave him a name, the game gave the Seahawks the game, and, and in the celebration that followed of the crowd, there was so much just pure joy and delight that a, a seismic station nearby actually registered a small tremor at Quest Field, hence the name Beastquake. Now, I don't know the person, but in that play, there's 11 people on a team. He broke through nine of them to score a touchdown and ran for 67 yards. I, I think if I was to sit down and talk with him, I think we would find out we have very different opinions on very important things from what I read in the media, some of the other things he does with his free time. But I respect his determination. He ran through a team, and these guys that he ran through, their job since they were probably five was to put people in the turf and leave a mark on the grass, put them down hard and, and make it hurt. And he just kept running through and just kept pushing guys over and just kept going and just kept running until he was all the way there. You have to admire that. And, and, and the play is remembered not because it kind of helped them win the game, not because he scored, but the play is remembered because of all the opposition. And, there, and there's something about opposition that makes the glory of the person going through it and, and the glory of, of in, in, in a case when we think of our the children of God, as we push through opposition, there's something God glorifying when his children run through opposition, trial, difficulty, and they run like that with great 
determination and strength. Don't you want to be the kind of person that runs at the whisper of the master? It just runs like that beast mode through whatever comes up as you obey him. There's something about that. You know, I, I would say this. I so appreciate, you know, every Sunday a group of people has prepared hard all week. They come here early. They come here during the week to practice, and they, they lead us in worship. But I would say, you know what? I keep saying I have some of my worship team in the audience. They don't ever sing on a Sunday morning. But I know enough of their story, and I look at them and think, you encourage me. You magnify God because I know enough of your story to know what you're doing is hard and you're running well and you're running through and you're going beast mode through the difficulty. There's something God glorifying when his children run through opposition. And so there's something good about opposition. Herod's anger is roused by the news of the wise men. It's interesting, he... Um, he feels like he's been tricked by the wise men, not aware that it's not the wise men who planned that, but it's God in a dream who warned them, don't do this. Herod has picked a, a battle with God. So in verse 16, when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And, and, and there's our word, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That single-use word, I don't know what was in the author's mind, but I, I think he's talking about a, a very powerful and unique rage. Became furious. Uh, the translation flew into a rage. And we understand this is not the tantrum of a two-year-old in Walmart that doesn't get something he wants. Those are, are pretty easy to deal with. I've heard some parents say you just walk away, <laughs> pretend it's the other guy's child, and then come back when he's kind of tired out. But you, basically, you can just grab a two-year-old, you pick him up, you get him through the aisle, you can leave your buggy there, you get him in the car, strap him in, and you drive down Highway 6, and they fall asleep, and you're done. This is not that kind of a tantrum. This is the rage of a king who, who loves power, who is determined to hang on to it, and who has power enough to maintain his power. A king who will do anything to keep his place, his throne, and it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter the cost. And in this, this rage, he manages to be strategic. It's not a blind rage where he loses his mental capacity. He remembers the date when he spoke with the Magi in private. He was sure to find out when did this happen, when did this star show up. So he has an idea in terms of the kind of timeline he is dealing with, and he adds margin to that so that he makes sure that he gets them, that child. He, he knows where the child was born in terms of geography, adds margin in that as well, and he sends out his men to execute that mission of, of killing these children. We don't know how many boys that would fit that criteria. Some would estimate 10 to 20 we don't know. But the mission is executed perfectly. They come back and say, mission accomplished. And he thinks it's done. But God has protected his son, and so the purpose of the mission is not fulfilled. And, and in so doing, in his rage, in his determination to, to fight against what God had planned and purposed, Herod unwittingly helps fulfill a couple of prophecies. 
not in terms of, of, of prediction and accomplishment, but as one commentator explains it, it's, it's a case of analogical correspondence. These events correspond to events that happened earlier in the Old Testament. And, and there's a tragic side to this when you imagine 10, 20 families having somebody bang on a door, grab their kid, and slaughter them, lose their child. But at the same time, isn't it encouraging when we see a very, very powerful man, a very, very determined man, scheming with all his missing, using all his might, working against the purposes of God, determined to stop it, and it doesn't work. And in fact, God uses Herod for his purposes. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but you look around the world sometimes, and it's, it's a crazy world. It's broken. And you can look around and, and wonder, is God at work in this, in this place? Things look terrible. You wonder, is God absent? Is God busy? Understand his purposes are, are never at risk. And I, and I find it so encouraging in, in, in another sense. Not only will God accomplish his purposes, but God can use anybody to accomplish what he wants. And isn't it encouraging in sort of a weird way if God can use Herod for his purpose, if God can use somebody who's, whose whole intent is all about him and all about his throne and all about his place and his power, he's using everything he has to work against the purposes of God. If God can use that man who's pulling as hard as he can in the other direction, if God can use that man to accomplish his purposes, fulfill prophecy to glorify his name, do you think God can use us? We, we look at our lives sometimes, and I, and I think we can be discouraged. We, we see our, our, our obedience as halting, don't we? You, you realize, you know, I, I wasn't sure God really meant what he said when he promised this. And, and, and then years later, we say, yeah, he was, he was faithful. God can use us as we stumble. God can use us in spite of our inability, our inadequacy, our weakness. Isn't it great when we pray that prayer, God, Lord Jesus taught us, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be worshipped. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray that, God, God can do that. And he always does. His purposes are never broken. We see in, in, in these accounts we looked at over the number of weeks, God uses the doubter, somebody who prayed for a child and, and kept praying, but didn't have belief enough when he was told by an angel of God it was going to happen. He thought, I don't think so. He just had faith enough to mouth words, and that was all he had. God uses the faithful in Mary and Joseph, and God uses one who is completely opposed to his purpose, and Jesus' life is marvelously preserved. And here today, we are talking about the one Herod was determined to destroy. As we look ahead, isn't it wonderful to know God will accomplish his purposes? Somebody had sent a, a link to a message. I haven't listened to it yet, but it, it, it starts in Isaiah chapter 45 uh, along the lines talking about I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 46, similar thought expressed here. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, 
and I will do it. God saying, I, I always do what I say, <laughs> and nothing ever stops me, and nothing could ever stop me. Been going through this Psalms, and in Psalms 2, you hear this, or see this picture of, of, of kings and, and rulers and the influential planning against God and, and, and saying, we're going we're gonna to break this, we're going to destroy this. And, and in verse 4, we read, he sits in heaven and he laughs, <laughs> because they can't do it. They have no power. His purposes will be accomplished. My encouragement to all of us, James in chapter 4 says this, God opposes the proud. I think most of us have discovered how good God is at opposing the proud, haven't you? <laughs> you ever pushed against God? Is there anybody here that has succeeded? <laughs> I think some of us say, I thought I was succeeding, and then I realized, I didn't realize I was on the ground on my back. It just, it just, I just didn't figure it out very fast. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that an awesome thing? You want grace? You just have to recognize your need of it, and you just have to ask. He goes on to say, here's, here's my suggestion. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. My encouragement to you today is, if you're one of those people who's been battling God for a long time. This is the day to submit. This is the time to submit. Give yourself to him. Surrender to his persons. Align yourselves with him. His purposes will be accomplished. It would make great sense and it would be wise to, to align yourself with his purposes. I would also encourage you this morning today because I, I think sometimes we, we believe, yeah, God will accomplish his big overarching purposes, but I don't know if God can accomplish this as purposes for me. I have made big mistakes. My life is a train wreck. I've, I've made decisions that I'm still paying for today. God can use anybody at any time to accomplish anything he wants. He is not blocked by our weakness, our inability, our sin, by anything in our lives. Again, I've been reading through the Psalms, another one that has encouraged me. In Psalm 138, uh, the psalmist is praising God with his whole heart, singing his praise, because he says, you know what? You've exalted above all things your name and your word. <laughs> I love that you are exalting your name and your word. And then in Psalm 23, the one we know so well, isn't it beautiful? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He said, I'm going to weave my purposes with my purposes for you. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in you not just for your good, but for my glory. And I'm going to work together with you in that direction for those reasons. The Psalm ends 138 with this incredible statement. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> like, really? With all the mistakes I've made? David says he's going to do it. God is going to accomplish his purposes, and, and my encouragement for all of us this morning is to surrender to that. Work alongside that and, and, and surrender your lives to his glory and his purposes. It's a wonderful